Hello and welcome to May I Have This Dance, a podcast from the Human Awareness Institute, or HI, among friends. We're here because we love having real, rich, juicy conversations with people. We strip down with the people we interview, figuratively and only sometimes literally, to the undercurrent of what it means to be human through the lens of love, intimacy, and sexuality. As an organization, HI is a place to explore and embrace our humanness. Obviously, a podcast can't replace our workshops, but we do hope that in these interviews you are able to catch a glimpse of who we are and what we do. Shall I get started with the interview? Let's do it! Oh hi, I didn't see you there. I'm Haya, recording in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. In this episode, I'm talking with one of the most thoughtful people I have ever met. William Winters is a community leader, a politically active soul who is trying to hold space for all voices around him. In our interview, he jokingly said that he accidentally founded a sex cult. But if this is a cult, it's one of the most loving and caring ones I've ever heard of. As we were recording, we were up to our ears in a global pandemic. I got curious whether not being able to hang out in person is a bit of a bump in the road for hosting sex parties. His response surprised and delighted me, and the conversation that followed really changed my approach to what online communities can be. Have a listen. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, What is your name and what pronouns do you like to use? Uh, William Winters, he, him. So the reason we invited you on the podcast is that you have so many interesting slices of your life. uh, And I would like to get into some of those. What is the most interesting thing about you? Good question. Uh, I think that the thing that probably generates the most interest externally is my work with Bonobo Tribe, um, which is an organization I founded about 10 years ago, give or take. Yeah, and like my role as a community leader in the polyamorous and sex positive space in the Bay Area. Amazing. So what is Bonobo Tribe and what was the th- what was the series of events that caused you to start that? So, you know, I'm originally from South Louisiana and went to Louisiana State University, opened my relationship with my partner in 2007. As you can imagine, there just weren't a lot of resources for non-monogamous people, especially newly non-monogamous folks in Baton Rouge in 2007. The national conversation that we're experiencing now around polyamory was really just getting started, just really catching wind at that point in time. So when we moved to the Bay Area in 2008, about a year and a half later, we finally had an experience of community for the first time and we dove in and became leaders in some of those communities. And as we started to like explore the play party scene in particular, um, we we found some real stinkers for sure. And, and then we stumbled across one that really yeah, it was it was like magical. You know, the culture and the expectations and the connection and all of it was were just amazing. And um, I knew that I wanted to throw parties just like that one myself. And so for my 31st birthday in like July, 2010, I gathered like 25 of my new Bay Area friends in my little two-bedroom apartment and threw my first ever play party. That was the first in the series of events that would become known as Bonobo Tribe. Um, I would say that um, 
play parties are the thing that kind of get people in the door in many respects, but what people stay for is the sense of community. And we're really leaning hard into the idea that Bonobo Tribe is, is a community and, and not just a party. And that's especially relevant now when we can't really throw parties and yet we're still trying to maintain our sense of togetherness and connection uh, and participation and fun and excitement and joy and pleasure as a community. So for somebody who doesn't know what a play party is, um, what is one of those and what happens at a play party? Sure. So it sort of depends on what era and geography you hail from. Uh, For some people, in some places, a play party refers specifically to a BDSM party, uh, where often there isn't a lot of sex happening. The way I use it and the way a lot of uh, folks I know use it, um, it refers to any kind of party that um, centers sexual interaction, whether that's on the kinky side of things or the vanilla sex side of things. Um, And the way that we approach it is that, you know, we're throwing a party and no one has to interact in any particular kind of way. What we want to do is throw what feels like a really great, really inclusive, really welcoming house party that also has a very wide menu of relational options, a much wider menu than your standard house party. So you might find some people having sex. You might find some people chatting around the snack table. You might find some people flogging and getting flogged or single-tailing and being single-tailed or a sort of range of, of um, BDSM activities are welcome in the spaces that we create. But, you know, the, the core thing is that people are connecting in the ways that feel good to them with full consent and with hopefully a feeling of like safety thank you for that that feels like a really respect driven and consent driven way of interacting and that actually sounds pretty appealing to me how do you set the stage for something like that so i'm, I'm a really big culture nerd a lot of my my work has been in the realms of like community organizing and and that sort of thing and and i really believe in the power of setting expectations and building a a shared culture and so we do that in a lot of different ways Uh, first is that um, years ago i took the time to sort of articulate a set of principles that help people to figure out uh, just like what they're getting into and what the expectations are um, Bonobo Tribe, uh, our, our in-person events are built on six principles. Um, the first is that uh, play parties are best when they're treated as high possibility, low expectation spaces. Um, the second principle is consent. The third principle is uh, integrity. The fourth principle is that our play parties are what I call high challenge, high support spaces. The fifth principle is co-creation and participation. And then the last principle is inclusion. Are the ideas, and I can get into them later if you'd like, um, but those are the ideas that um, guide how the community is run uh, and that we hope people 
will bring into every interaction, right? And so we communicate those principles as often as we can. We communicate the principles on every event invitation. Um, we, uh, the registration forms and so on. We um, ask that every member of Manova Tribe who wants to attend the party attend an orientation. Um, and the orientation is about three hours and it's a really deep dive into the ideas but then also like the sort of um, policies and procedures and processes that guide the community. Then at our parties, we tend to have an opening circle that starts every party. And we ask that every attendee arrive by the time the opening circle starts. And that's another opportunity to once again, talk about the principles that undergird the community. And so um, they say repetition is the mother of learning. And, um, you know, we do a lot of repetition uh, because we really want folks to be clear about exactly what the expectations are, not just behaviorally, that's certainly important, but also attitudinally, you know, um, we're really trying to um, um, create a community uh, that has uh, a shared approach to uh, sexuality or to, to, to sexuality in social in, in social settings. That, that seems like it's a really well thought through approach. And um, I appreciate that because I imagine a lot of people think about this from kind of an end goal in, in view, which is like, hey, let's get a bunch of people together who, uh, you know, might want to exper experiment sexually. But you just mentioned something really interesting to me, which was around that there were high challenge uh, situations. Did I hear that right? Yeah, the, the idea is that, um, you know, we, we really just, we want to normalize uh, for every attendee of our events that these parties might be really hard. The thing that I say um, all the time is that sex parties are almost uniquely uh, optimized to bring up your deepest high school shit. All of the questions of like belonging and self-evaluation and the negative self-talk, like uh, am I good enough? Am I pretty enough or good looking enough? Um, you know, um, am I the kind of person who can get what I want? Oh my God, do I even know what I want? Ah, like, you know, you can get <laughs> yeah. um, really overwhelmed with the social experience. And, and, you know, in particular, I think that like spaces where you may have to just contend with disappointment um, or with jealousy or with being triggered by something that you didn't know was going to trigger you or getting triggered by something that you knew perfectly well would trigger you. Um, you know, um, like there, there's just uh, so much possibility of emotional, uh, of intense emotional energy. Sometimes that like intense emotional energy is aligned with like, like positive feeling, you know, um, sometimes those intense emotional energies are aligned with negative feelings. Um, but like the thing that we want to sort of get across here is that um, no one has to ever perform sexy to be at our parties. Like no one has to be any particular kind of way. And we want to make sure that people are well supported if they are having hard feelings. And that's something that we do um, in a couple of different ways. One is, you know, we, we um, really try to, cultivate a spirit of um, mutual support um, so that people are really looking out 
for one another in the space. Um, the second thing is that we have these volunteers called angels, um, and our angels are both our space monitors, but also they're sort of like our vibe squad. You know, they're there to provide emotional and social support to people who need it. And we have like uh, at least two angels on each shift at uh, any party we throw. And so what, what do the angels actually do? Do you, like if you have a, a difficult situation, um, how would you interact with an angel? Sure. So um, let's say you're at a party, you are having a hard time connecting with people and you're getting more and more you know, like sort of triggered by you know, your sort of experience of loneliness or getting stuck in uh, this sort of experience of disconnection, you can approach an angel and say, hey, you know, I'm having a pretty hard time, I'm finding it hard to connect with people, um, you know, and the angel will, you know, see like, if you want to talk about it, and if you want to talk about it further, um, what they do is provide really high quality listening. Um, the angels aren't there to give advice, you can certainly ask for advice if you want it. But you know, I always recommend that people take advice with with a grain of salt. But they're there to provide just like good, non-judgmental listening, and um, you know, the angels can also be sort of like social yentas in a way. You know, if someone uh, doesn't know people and they'd like to get to know people, then the angel can like introduce that person around the party to the person that to people that they know. You know, um, and um, yeah, that, that's just like one of the ways that angels can be helpful. But, you know, when we train angels, I mean, what we are really training them to do is uh, to listen well, to uh, hold space, as we are fond of saying in Northern California, and to give good reflection. So it, it feels like you are, you've obviously been doing this for a really long time, and it is something you're really passionate about. What do you get out of this? Why, why are you doing this work? For a lot of different reasons, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, when I moved to the Bay Area, I certainly didn't imagine that I would be, like, running my own sex cult. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I came to work in um, activism. Like, uh, I, I work for, like, political and nonprofit advocacy organizations for a lot of my adult life. And um, I kind of figured I would be, like, climbing the like nonprofit professional ladder or something like that. But um, as I got more and more involved in organizing poly spaces and having the impact of those spaces reflected back to me, I think I started to just shift a little bit. I think um, the theory of change that I operated on was uh, oriented for a lot of my life towards like the institutional and uh, the systemic and, uh, you know, changing laws and, you know, getting stories written up in like the Washington Post and the New York Times and, you know, other big national publications and, um, you know, sort of, yeah, having impact on, on that level. And that's really important, you know, for sure. And I think I, I wish more people would be sort of like oriented towards um, creating that kind of change in the world. But you know, I, as I started to see that really powerful transformation was available to people through shared experience of community and through exploration of sexuality, you know, it's more of the theory of change that, uh, I don't know if they would exactly use a theory of change terminology, but, the, you know, many like therapists and counselors and other 
like personal transformation workers use. You know, like they're they're still doing super important work. They're creating impact, um, um, and they're doing it at the interpersonal level as opposed to the institutional level. Um, and that started to just appeal to me more and more. And um, yeah, and you know, every day in Bonobo Tribe, you know, I I am fortunate to get reflected back to me like how much value this community is providing people. You you mentioned community a lot of the time and and the like right in the beginning that was the thing you felt you were looking for and the thing you found in the Bay Area after moving here. What what does community mean to you and what is like the characteristic of a community that that uh, speaks to you? Yeah, uh, so um, I'm going to give a plug to uh, this really great, great book I read called The Art of Community by um, Charles Vogel, I believe is his name. Um, I think he lives here in Oakland and uh, he consults specifically about like creating experiences of community. One of the, the my favorite things that he says is that the one of the biggest differences um, uh, between a group and a community is that uh, in a community, you can really expect that people are going to have your back when times get hard. Um, cultivating that sense, you know, that like there is sort of mutual holding, but then also cultivating the like responsibility and also the skill to do so well and responsibly and you know not without like sort of over promising outcomes um is just something that i have been really uh, that, I, that i found a lot of um meaning in um but yeah so 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 i mean i think that like at the most basic level that's what a community is it's a, it's a group of people with like shared interests sure um but um but also like the kind of uh, commitment to one another and also to like the the conception of the group that creates a sense of like um, mutual responsibility and loyalty and um, uh, connection and, and even love. One of the things that really speaks to me about what you just said is the idea that when a going gets tough, communities show up for each other. Yeah. As we're recording this, there's a there's a pandemic on, and um, I'm guessing uh, sex parties aren't really on the table right now. Um, how has your community come together without being able to interact in person? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, we have always had a really active Facebook group. That group has I don't know, maybe two thousand people in it, and in any given month, you know, something like seventeen hundred of those people. Um, interact with the content with content in the group in some way, um, which is pretty good. You know, um, there uh, and, and, and that group has gotten even more active um, since uh, the pandemic really, or since the effect of the pandemic uh, started coming into play here in Northern California. So that's 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 one thing. Um, people are just like connecting with each other uh, digitally through social media. Um, another thing is that, you know, just, uh, as my business partner, Misha, and I started to, you know, see that like events weren't going to be a thing anymore. Um, you know, 
we pivoted very quickly to creating um, virtual experiences using uh, different platforms um, that would allow people to connect. And so um, in many ways, the pandemic has really forced us to become the version of the organization that I've wanted us to become. Like we've always focused on um, creating a connection and, and the kind of connection that isn't particularly goal oriented, you know? Um, and now that goal oriented, uh, now that like uh, goal orientation, particularly around like sort of uh, like sexual connection is uh, off the table in a way, um, you know, we're doing like daily check-ins um, from noon to one. And, um, you know, we have a book club on Wednesday nights and I'm doing a like video interview series with sex culture creators on Thursday nights. And we are doing like sort of mixer, like virtual mixers and uh, happy hours and um, that sort of thing. We are. And sorry to ask like a really obvious question, maybe, but I imagine a lot of listeners would assume that if you founded a sex cult, <laughs> as you said, when the sex stops, people stop turning up. But from what you're saying, people are still really engaged in every level of this. Is, is that right? Oh, yeah, it's really intense. <laughs> um, and another another bit of the reflection that I've gotten in the last few weeks is that Bonobo Tribe has been a real resource for people who otherwise might have experienced really great loneliness um, or, or particularly um, loneliness around um, their sexual and relational selves. You know, um, there aren't, there just aren't a lot of spaces online, a lot of high quality spaces where you can um, expect to um, be vulnerable and have that vulnerability like sort of respected and returned in a way. Um, um, and I'm not saying that people are like a hundred percent like emotionally intelligent and, you know, kind or whatever, but we also have like moderators who help to enforce the guardrails that we have like, you know, in, in the virtual space and, um, in, in the, the Facebook group, especially. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, finding spaces where you can, like, connect with other people who are like you in this one particular way, where even in the Bay Area, most people just aren't like you, you know? <laughs> like, if you're, like, non-monogamous, or, you know, if you're, like, sex positive, or and if you, like, and if you uh, enjoy expressing uh, your sexuality with other people, if you're, you know, maybe... Uh, a little bit on the promiscuous side, or even if you're not, but just like really enjoy being in those environments. Like that's a thing that unites people. And that I think is um, relatively rare. And I think that that cultivating the sense of community over the years, you know, like the, the hard work of, of um, getting people to um, internalize norms that like prioritize connection like it's so like it's relatively easy to find facebook groups about open relationships right but uh hard to find groups where people are like practiced at and oriented towards being like truly kind to one another you know where there aren't like little mini skirmishes um exploding on even the most innocuous of threads um so what i'm hearing from you then is that 
the community you you've built is sex positive and open to sexual connection but even when that is taken away what i'm really hearing is that there is a level of intimacy that exists and has kind of grown beyond uh or maybe it started with intimacy what's your what's your take on that like what came or is this a little bit of a chicken and egg type question it, it really is i mean um i think that it helps that um you know the community began as fundamentally like a group of my friends you know um and there were a lot of people who shared like values and practices and orientations from um you know sort of the the shared poly community we were part of in the bay area uh there are people who'd done like similar like sort of personal transformation programs or you know had just been in like lots of therapy and so we we i would say that like as a community we were sort of oriented already towards like intimacy and connection and accountability and um you know and i think uh an orientation towards like personal growth and transformation and and, and learning you know um I, I really think that that these kinds of spaces are incredibly potent containers uh for crucibles really for personal transformation and um and um you know like starting off where like the first where like most of the first you know 500 participants like also oriented towards it in that way like really helped to lock in the culture and now as people sort of cycle between like closer and farther orbits when it comes to their active participation in the community, we can be sure that there's always going to be a lot of uh, more experienced people who are helping to um, hold the culture to like reinforce the norms through, uh, through their behavior and their example. And that's true both in the uh, digital space and in meat space. You mentioned personal journeys, and I think that's actually one of the things that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, what was it that triggered yours? I mean, what at which point did you realize that there was something that you could journey towards? Was there anything in particular that, that triggered that, or have you just always been a seeker? Yeah, I mean, I was a philosophy major in college, and, you know, that definitely continues to influence me. Um, um, I was a debater and, uh, you know, was like sort of reading a lot of philosophy independently um, um, related to my time on the debate team. I mean, as young as like 14. So um, I guess there's always been a part of me that has been um, a seeker and asking questions. And then I think also my identity as a Southerner comes into play. Um, You know, I'm I have a really strong value around hospitality, you know, and, um, and creating spaces. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's informed by my family and by the place I come from. Um, and all of that is in turn, I think, tempered by, um, my experience, uh, as an organizer and as a political person, you know, um, and the orientation towards being inclusive and, um, using inclusive language and, you know, having, having a probably a slightly more political, like sort of conception of what inclusion means than other people, than most people may. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of that comes from 
you know, my work as a racial justice organizer and educator and, um, yeah. In the context of you being a political person, it's actually really interesting to have you show up as a community leader and um, to help build communities. Uh, do you feel there's an overlap there? I.e., is this part of your um, political work as well? Yeah, definitely. Giving people space to be themselves is certainly a political act. You know, I think that normalizing non-monogamy is a political act. Um, being um, like a black person who is like doing this work is a political act, you know, being, and I don't want to be like overly uh, like self-congratulatory about it. You know, there are many other and uh, (laughs) I would argue more consequential ways of being political (laughs) that like really matter. Like I, I, I'm like not a huge fan of some of the ways that like, non-monogamous folks sometimes like pat ourselves on the back for being like radical <laughs> for being non-monogamous and i just right. want to like acknowledge the fact that like there is some truth in the idea that like being out about who we are in a world that you know can punish us for being who we are through social disapprobation yeah i mean that 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 is political and being able to to sort of take the calculated risks and be out to my family and be out to um, my, uh, be out in like my professional spaces, like all of that matters. Yeah. And I mean, you say not to uh, uh, toot your own horn as it were, but at the same time, I feel like you have at least a couple of thousand people uh, surrounded uh, around you that started with a group of 25 friends and, you know, there is a incredible second order impact you have by being a, uh, a leader of example and the leader of, um, you know, standing up for principles that you really believe in. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I get to do um, a lot of education from my perch. And yeah, it, it definitely feels good to be able to do that and to open doors and open minds in, in those ways. Yeah, I do think there's a, there's a knock on effect. I think that's really powerful. And I think there's something really beautiful about people who choose to have that kind of impact. And, you know, if you have that megaphone, to use it in a way that is responsible and respectful. And I think more than most people that I know, you are particularly good at that of, uh, you know, having that, having that as a conversation rather than as a proclamation. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I, I like the idea of a conversation versus a proclamation. Um, it's not that I never make proclamations. It's that like my proclamations are often like invitations to consider a thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's more my style. So somebody, somebody who's been listening to this conversation and thinks, Hey, this Bonobo tribe is really exciting. Um, is that something you can sign up for or how, how does one get involved? Oh, gee. Um, so that's always, uh, it's a bit of a tricky question where, we are considering um, changing some things up. But right now, uh, Bonobo Tribe is and has been a referral-based community. And so people get in um, through uh, someone who's already a member of the community um, vouching for them. And, and our vouching uh, is, is specific. We, we basically ask people to 
um, you know, really like stake their reputation on the person they're inviting being a great fit for Bonobo Tribe. We've talked about some of the ways that people are connecting now digitally and, and in person that all seems incredibly sensitive and intimate and with a lot of trust built into the like even just being part of the community means that you are inside a bubble of trust yep. of sorts. Yep. And I think there is something really powerful about that. That's true. And so what is the most important thing you have learned about yourself throughout all of this? Uh, that's so much. Um, I mean, relative to this, I think I've just learned a lot about leadership and um, what is required to run a community like Bonobo Tribe. Um yeah, and and maybe maybe like the the biggest lesson there is just the responsible use of power, you know, like really recognizing that in this role of like convener, organizer, gatherer, um, producer, um, whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, I have a fair amount of social power, and um, I didn't ask for it exactly. Whether I asked for it or not, it produces a great deal of uh, responsibility for me to constantly be aware of it, to constantly question whether the social power I have might be at play in any interaction I have, even between friends who are like part of the community. Yeah. It's it's um, you know it's it's so tricky you know um, to have the responsibility to hold so many precious hearts you know um uh and i want to it's not that i like never want to hurt anybody i I recognize that that's uh not really possible and i know that i i have hurt people but you know i want to just um you know i want to not harm people um and the unconscious exercise of power uh, can be just so harmful. And uh, the effects, you know, I think that one of the reasons Bonobo Tribe has done so well as a community is that, you know, as leaders, we have really oriented towards, um, like, light touches and just being as aware as, as possible of the power that we have as leaders and encouraging other people to be thoughtful about the power they have from whatever roles they play or positions they hold, you know? Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's probably been, been the biggest, uh, most important lesson for me. Hey, William, thank you so much for, um, for participating so heart open and so, and so fully. I think there's a lot of really beautiful things here for, t- for people to think about and reflect on. Um, there's one question I love to close these interviews on, and I'd, I'd like to ask you that which is, um, what is the one song you can't not dance to? Uh, the one, I'm not much of a dancer, so that's, that is like a thing. But um, I mean, there, there are probably many answers to this question, but Hey Ya by Outcast definitely is up there. Hell yes. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, I look forward to seeing how uh, Bonobo Tribe continues to evolve and to see your extended impact in the, in the universe. Thank you so much for inviting me, Haya. 
Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Human Awareness Institute and to learn more about our workshops, please visit our website at hi.org. That's H-A-I dot org. This show was produced by my wonderful co-host, Kate Gillespie. And it was edited and co-produced by my equally delightful co-host, Haya Camps. Our introduction music is called Dance With Me, and it is performed and produced by our wonderful High Workshop participant, Gypsy Jack Van Brie. It was a pleasure to have you with us. See you soon. Ciao.